That is very true. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you both humbly and expectantly. We are grateful for a certain and sure word from you. And yet we still acknowledge our great need for your help in understanding it and letting it move us in ways that you have designed and to bring the full force of your word into contact with our daily life. And so we ask for your help to do that. We pray for your spirit to give us wisdom and insight. There are hundreds of ways you designed to apply this passage to your people. And so we pray that you would find us attentive, eager to hear from one voice this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Have you ever been in the presence of someone great? Maybe a person with a lot of political clout who with a simple phone call could make a big impact. I was looking online about the several rules that are involved with etiquette for being in the presence of royalty. It's staggering. Just in case. Yeah. Who speaks first during which course of the meal you talk, what you call him or her when you leave the gathering. It's pretty amazing. Maybe you've bumped into a famous person even and didn't quite know uh, what to do with yourself. I was on Balboa Island down in the Los Angeles area and I ran into Reggie Jackson, the famous baseball player. Mr. October himself was walking on the other side of the same sidewalk we shared. And so I just instinctively reached out (laughs) and patted him on the back and just said, Hey, Reggie. (laughs) It's one of the great regrets of my life. Um, But anyway, we do funny things around people who are are famous. How about someone with authority? Maybe you're sitting across the table with the vice president of the company or you're waiting on the side of the road for the officer to come to your window. You're sitting in the courtroom waiting for the judge, knowing that destinies are decided in this room. The greater the notoriety, the greater the authority, the more tendency we have to melt or to shrink back in the presence of people like that. And yet we believe that we have the costly access to the universe creator, to the one known as God, the triune God, that we claim to commune with God himself. We claim to have the ear of the creator of the universe. How are God's people supposed to think about coming into his presence? How are we to be in the presence of God? What's the protocol there? If you look at the Bible, there's a full spectrum uh, represented there. You have the woe is me, face down, aware of our brokenness in the dirt. And then you have Jesus, the Son of God, eating with nobodies around a table. You have Moses meeting with God face to face. Well, the Apostle John, he has spilled a lot of ink on this issue of assurance in the letter of 1 John up to this point. And he's writing with this very clear purpose. That you may know that you have eternal life. 
And in order to do that, he's provided these reassurance tests along the way. Right? We live in light, not in darkness. We have a certain relationship with sin. We believe that God's provided son and sacrifice has come in the flesh. We reject the false teachers who've planted their ladder on the uneven ground of this Gnosticism we've been hearing about. And one of the tests before our passage this morning in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, we saw last week, is the test of love. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to love as Christ loved by laying down our lives for each other in action and in deeds, not merely words. Well, John gives us these tests not to point out our failure, but to build God's people's confidence. Confidence is exercised trust in a person or belief. It's saying, I believe that this is so true and so reliable that I'm going to let the implications of that conviction extend into my life in ways that intersect with the decisions I make and the way that I think. So how does this assurance that John is after in this letter extend and inform how we come into God's presence? Look at me with First John, uh, chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. I'll read it for us. Here's what it says. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. A quick roadmap of where we're going this morning. We'll see in verse 19 really the point uh, of this text, that this reassurance test should lead to confidence. But then we're going to see three ways that God desires his children, his children to be confident in his presence. That's what he's after. Through those who flunk the test or pass the test and this idea of obeying and abiding. So let's start with verse 19, this reassurance test and what it leads to. Here's, here's the point, the larger point of this passage. God desires to lead us into his presence with confidence. There is a connection between this assurance that John wants believers to have and the way that we're to be in God's presence. We find that in 19 when he says, by this, and what is he referring to there? He's referring back to this test of a reassurance that our love for one another should actually show up in our actions. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and will reassure our hearts. Both of these ideas, we will know and we will reassure our future words. So by this test of reassurance, in the future, we can have this assurance, this real sense. And it's going to affect how we interact with God in his presence. So here's why you can be assured and confident in his presence in this life, is what John is addressing. Now the phrase, 
we are of the truth we've heard before in a couple different places in First John. But then he, he wants to say it again in a different way by saying to reassure our hearts before him. This is a kind of a unique way of, of describing it. The NIV captures it well. The word refers to setting our hearts at ease or to, to pacify our hearts. It's when a troubled heart finds calm. And notice where that reassurance takes place. And this is a recurring phrase in this text. We experience that inner reality of, of calm and confidence in his presence before him. We find that again, that phrase before him later on. We, we're talking about prayer and things like that. So we're talking about in communion with God where we have this reassurance. A lot of people believe this idea of reassuring our heart before him is talking about our conscience and the, the relationship and the status that we have before God. So let me ask, how do you approach God? How do you approach him? Do you approach him as a child? As a captured enemy? As a fearful slave? As a guilt-ridden criminal? How do you approach him? There may be two or three on that list that you experience in the same day, right? Depending on what the day is like. So let's just stop at this point in 1 John and look at these tests of reassurance that we've been hearing and just ask, how are we doing? Have we passed or failed them? How are we doing with those tests so far? And how have these tests of reassurance affected how we've interacted with God? I don't know about you, but I've been very convicted by the book of 1 John. And these categories, we have to remember, are meant to drive us toward God, not away from Him. And here's the incredible news of our text this morning, that not only can we be confident in God's presence, but that God desires that we would be confident as His children in His presence. Now, why would I say that God desires that we come into His presence with confidence? There's reasons in the text that we have in front of us. So let's look first at verse 20. He goes on, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. You think, oh, Ben, you're not off to a very good start here, right? We're talking about someone who seems to have flunked the test. Well, what about when you feel that you don't measure up to one of these tests of reassurance? How do we approach God when we're struggling and feeling like we flunked the test? Well, there's a difference between truly flunking the reassurance test, and thinking that you flunked the reassurance test. Both are important, right? If we look over our, at our lives and we find no evidence, for example, of love for the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, then our doubts do have a basis, right? Our hearts can get accurate readings from time to time, and sometimes the message back is failure, This lack of salvation, though, can be overcome by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And God giving us a verdict like this is actually him taking a step towards us in providing assurance. He knows everything, right? 
Healing begins with an accurate diagnosis, and this is God's grace to us if we indeed have flunked the test. But here, our heart's condemnation is not our biggest problem, right? It's God's condemnation if we're not in Christ. And yet, He has provided a way out of His this rightful condemnation that we're in. Our first time conviction is like waking up to the reality that God has known all along, right? And while we may feel crushed under the conviction of that first time of realizing that you're a sinner before God, He could very well say, you don't know the half of it, right? We're just becoming aware of this larger problem. And you think, well, why is this a comfort and a help? It's because of what 1 John 2, 1 said. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God's judgment is a more devastating diagnosis, and yet it's that same judge who knows everything that provides a corresponding cure. Better to get the right cure for a worse problem than to treat the symptoms only. So there's that aspect of what it means to flunk this test, but I think John is also addressing the opposite problem here. It's also possible for our heart and conscience to go overboard to have excessive guilt for our conscience to misfire. And the problem is not that our conscience is too dull, but that it's hypersensitive. It's not a perfect instrument, as you well know, right? And we learn in other places in the New Testament. Our judgments often misread things and miss the target. Like believers who form convictions around things with food that we find in the New Testament. In Romans 14, where it's... The circumstances, it's not necessarily God's standard, but it's what they believe with conviction. It's important to heed our consciences, but we always need to fine-tune them, right? Realizing that sometimes we make mountains out of things that God calls molehills. And maybe you've met that person, or maybe you've been that person that no matter what it is, they always end up being the guilty party, blaming themselves for everything, even if they had very little to do with something. Maybe their low estimation of themselves bleeds over into everything that they do. They're living under a burden of guilt, even as a follower of Jesus. If you can't relate to that, let's just think of this one test of reassurance that he gave us in the passage before. Let's talk about loving one another. How could someone end up feeling condemned and having a guilty conscience for something like that? Well, love is sometimes misunderstood as something else, right? Perhaps your attempts to love haven't, haven't really been taken. They've been twisted. Or Loving others doesn't always mean that they know that you're loving them. Loving others is never finished. Ever think about that? Like, man, that person is loved. They are good to go for the rest of their life. I mean, do our needs ever end? None of us are completed until Jesus returns. Loving other people can sometimes be confusing. You want to love them, but you don't know how to. It's complicated, and it seems to get more complicated. And then there's always more people to love, right? I mean, think about it. There's hundreds of people in our church. That is a massive project for everyone in our church to feel completely loved by our brothers and sisters. 
This doesn't even include all the other followers of Jesus that we know and intersect with. This is how the overburdened person thinks. The hypersensitive conscience works. Loving others is sometimes misunderstood, never finished, occasionally confusing, and never over. And so the person who leans towards guilt can always find a reason that they've flunked. One commentator says, In his omniscience, he knows that our often weak attempts to obey his commands spring from a true allegiance to him. Notice what John says in this verse after he talks about how our hearts condemn us. He says, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. To those who are bound up in excessive guilt and discouragement, God will provide exodus out of that wilderness. He is a greater deliverer than we are accusers. Or as Andrew Peterson said in a song, how does it end when the war that you're in is just you against you against you? You've got to learn to love, learn to love, learn to love your enemies too. Think of Judas and Peter, both betrayed, both stood condemned, and yet the Lord graciously led Peter out of that discouragement and guilt. So while God's knowledge of everything can be intimidating to those who truly flunk flunk this test, it's a comfort to those who are genuinely trying to obey Him. Because only God knows the full story. He knows everything. He sees your motives when other people don't. He knows that you're limited in how you love. He hears your pleas for wisdom to love well when you don't know what to do. And He knows that you alone are not the solution to everyone's need for love. He is using the entire body to love the entire body. There is only one Savior of the church, and He is not us. One commentator says, God expects us to do what we can, not what we can't. So, how can we see God's desire for us to be confident in His presence? Well, notice this, that whether you pass or fail this test, God moves toward you in grace. He's going to help you either way. If you flunk, He offers His Son in our place. If our consciences are hyperactive and condemning when they shouldn't be, He leads us out of that discouragement and asks us to simply trust His knowledge more than our own. So everything that God is doing in this verse is leading us to being confident in His presence. What is the implication of this? Why does this matter? No matter where you're at right now, God has made a way for you to return to his presence with confidence. He has provided a way to set your heart at ease before him, whether that's through repentance or whether that's through trusting his knowledge, his exhaustive knowledge, more than your own. This is massively freeing to the overactive conscience. But we see another reason why we can be confident that God actually desires this confidence in us if we see those who pass the test in verses 21 and 22. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. 
And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. It's possible to please him. What a joy. Have you ever come before God in his presence and felt like you, you do have a clean conscience? You're right before him. Well, what shape does that confidence then take? Or what direction does that go? That goes towards prayer, right? It says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Notice that freedom in God's presence doesn't lead to cowering or hiding, but asking. When we're confident before the Lord, we can ask things of him and pray. This is not saying, if you have a clean conscience... It ups your chance for getting yeses from God. Keep in mind the context of this passage. Before it, this is a person who feels that their relationship with God is not obstructed by something that they're aware of, right? And after he says that whatever we ask, we receive, he says, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So in other words, this person is eager to do the will of God and has been living within the will of God. I know that creates a dilemma that we cannot solve with some equation or some formula. We see this dilemma in James 4, which says both you do not have because you do not ask, and also you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But what is this verse saying? Not just what is it not saying. In this environment, and environments like it in the New New Testament, God says over and over and over again, ask, ask, I'm your father, ask. A disciple, we are never in danger of receiving harm from God by asking him something. God only gives good gifts. Now, it is safe to say that those who are eager to do God's will and are confident before God, we do see answers to prayer, right? But answers include yes, no, not now. There are lots of ways that God answers our prayers. But the more confident we are that something is God's will, the more confidence we can ask with. The more that my kids get to know me, and know the kinds of things that I would say yes to, the more confidence they can have in asking me something that they think that I'll get behind. And in fact, our kids know this so well that they carefully select which parent to ask which question because they're so aware and so tuned in to that dynamic. And when they ask something for the first time, though, this is unfamiliar territory, they're, they're less confident But they still ask. And as a father, what type of confidence would I love to see in my children when they come to me? Do I want them holding out on me? Hedging their bets? Calculating their words? Keeping their requests and their hearts close? Of course not, right? I want want them to have confidence in my love for them. So that they're willing to share what, whatever they're thinking and ask for anything that they would like. But I also want them to have enough confidence in my love for them that I'm willing to tell them no or not now. I think this is a small window into the, the dynamic that we have 
with God in prayer through verses like this. But how does this show, as I've been harping on about, God's desire for us to be confident in His presence? Well, it shows it in this way. God's attention and willingness to answer prayer shows His desire for confident children. That's why He's saying this. So that we'll pray and ask, what are the implications of this? How does this affect us? Well, It means that we can ask expectantly and boldly. We can do that. That's a biblical thing to do. And we can also work on keeping our consciences clear because it it fuels a life of prayer. Those things are connected, right? All the way from the garden. Our tendency has been when we are in sin to hide from God. And that takes work. That takes conviction, repentance, and obedience. Lastly, verses 23 and 24, we hear about obeying and abiding. Verse 22, it kind of begged a question when it said, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him, which leads to the question, well, what is his commandment? What would please God? And so we find in verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. This is a singular commandment, interestingly enough. Believe and love. Believe. Not just believe, but believe in something specific. Believe in the name of His Son. And that, that His Son is the Christ, is the Messiah. Associate yourself with His person and work. Identify with who Jesus is. And this... This is an interesting religious command, if you think about it. What is the work of God but to believe in the Son? It's, it is active, it is involved, but it's, it's not to go doing something uh, to earn God's favor. It's, it's to believe. This is where it starts. Believe in the Son. Believe that He's the Messiah. And then knowing the Son will lead to loving others as we've heard. So he's emphasizing obedience, but just as he's emphasizing obeying, he starts talking about abiding in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. I think it's most likely that John is saying whoever keeps the Father's commandments abides in his Son and his Son abides in him. With John, you can kind of flip those around sometimes because he so identifies the Father with the Son that, that sometimes their work um, intermingle, you could say, though their persons clearly don't. I'm not sure that that matters as much as notice that the abiding flows in both directions, right? And he says to abide means to remain or stay or to be near, that we abide in God. We can know that if we obey him. It's pretty straightforward. The reverse doesn't work, though. God doesn't abide in us because he obeys us. Well, how would we know, then, that God abides in us? John says the indication that God abides in us is the presence of his Spirit. He gifts his Spirit to make it clear that he does indeed abide with us. And this is right in alignment with John's goal. Remember, his goal is to assure the believers that they have eternal life. And what does the Holy Spirit do? What's his ministry characterized by? Assurance. Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. 
And if children, then heirs. So John is less worried about, well, which is first, chicken or egg, obeying or abiding. He's more interested in showing that these things are related. Obeying and abiding go together. They reinforce one another. They spiral upward together is the idea. Now, how, do, how does this prove God's desire that we would be confident children? Two ways. First, God gives the Spirit as proof of His presence to help His children to be confident in His presence. And think about this. This is, this is so fitting way to conclude. I know that chapter 4, the Spirit's going to be important, but what a gift that God has given us, His Holy Spirit, to reinforce all the things we've just talked about. The difference between having a conscience that's overburdened or accurate is by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, right? He convicts in an accurate way, in accordance with Scripture, and he interrupts the overly sensitive conscience. The Spirit makes our prayers that sometimes are groans because we don't know what to do or what God's will is. He makes them intelligible and intercedes for us according to the will of God. The Spirit empowers our obedience, which reinforces our confidence before Him. Do you see how the ministry of the Holy Spirit is giving the confidence and the assurance that's needed to go into God's presence? And what a gift of God that He would not only give us access through the blood of His Son, but that He would concern Himself that we would take full advantage of that access. I mean, think about that. How He's moved heaven and earth to make it possible for sinners to be in relationship with Him. And then He goes the extra step to even care that we can actually experience that with Him. And to know that access and to take full advantage and not to shy away, but to press forward towards Him with confidence. And He desires that so bad that He allows and gifts the Holy Spirit to indwell believers. So, that's number one. Number two, God's command to believe and abide in His Son is the only basis for confidence in His presence. All this talk about assurance and confidence assumes something, doesn't it? How do traitors and rebels end up close or in any kind of proximity to God without being totally obliterated? How does that work? What are the grounds of this assurance? Sure, we can do the things, we, we, our conscience and prayer and these things, but what is the foundation? What's the basis? How can this even be possible? Why are we having this discussion at all? How are we not walking on eggshells all the time? Hebrews 10. A few verses and then we'll have a few on the screen. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time A single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Why does this matter? A few verses later. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, confidence by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, what do we do? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. What's the foundation? What's the basis? The sent Son who lived and died and rose again. That's the foundation. That's why we can have confidence. It's not because we're great or impressive to God. It's because He has made a way through His Son. And it's come at a great cost to Him. So who are we to shrink back from having confidence in His presence when He has done everything required for us to have confidence before Him? We can have confidence because Jesus is the basis of our confidence. What more investment could we ask for from God to show us His desire for us to be confident when we are near Him? So I ask, before we get to celebrate and remember that foundation, that death, how do you approach your Father? How does God's desire for confident children affect how you approach Him even today? Let's be thinking about those questions. Before Jesus died and was raised to life, He shared a final meal with His disciples. And it would be the first of many of these meals that the disciples would have in the days to come. And we too will share in this meal together as well. The Lord's Supper is a refreshing reminder of why God's children can have such a curious confidence before Him. It makes sense that communion is a time for those who have confessed Jesus as their one and only access to God. So if you're not a follower of Christ, we'd ask you to abstain from participating in communion, but to consider what's been shared and to think on these things. Let me pray as we prepare to take communion together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you not only have done what you have done to give us access, but that you care that we take it. And that we can be before you with clean hearts, forgiven by you because of the blood of Jesus, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we can be bold, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done. So God, I pray that you would impress that on our hearts. Remind us of why it is that we can come before you with confidence that that these elements remind us of. Instruct our hearts in this time, God, we pray and we ask for your leading. In Jesus' name, amen.